Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we have clinical conversations that impact your pharmacy practice. Today, Jeff Wall talks with guest and infectious disease pharmacist Amanda Bushman about a potentially transformational way to prevent sexually transmitted infections. Don't forget to claim your CE after listening. Hello and welcome again to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Today, I actually was jokingly thinking about giving a not uh, not safe for work warning <laughs> for this uh, topic, but I decided, no, uh, g- given that my work isn't involved in healthcare, I think we're probably pretty safe. So uh, before we get any farther, I'd like to introduce uh, our special guest star, Amanda Bushman. Amanda and I are old friends. She is the uh, infectious disease pharmacist at uh, Unity Point, Des Moines. And uh, I work with her almost daily, I think, uh, in the world of infectious diseases. And I, and I appreciate her expertise in taking time. So welcome, Amanda, to the show. Yeah, thanks, Jeff, for having me on the podcast today. I'm excited uh, to be a participant. Excellent. Thank you. So what the study we're going to talk about today, I think is it's a brand new study. It's just been on the last two or three weeks in JAMA. I, I Jake Galdo, who uh, was really, you know, he's always helping us look for new studies. And this is one that totally slipped by me. And it really shouldn't have because uh, it really has the fundamental uh, ability to maybe transform how we prevent sexually transmitted infections in the United States. So this is a, could be a big, big study. So especially for those of you working in an emergency room, urgent care, to obviously primary care doctors who uh, deal with sexually transmitted diseases, infectious disease groups. I think there's a, there's a lot of people whom, if you haven't read the study, you probably should because it's 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 pretty it's pretty big. So you know, I, again, for those of us, I work primarily in patients, so I just don't see a ton of sexually transmitted infections. But as we know the incidence of all of these are going up, not down. And that has continued to go past the uh, initial AIDS crisis of the 80s. And then it is, it is still, say, on, on a rising basis ever since then. And particularly, in dis- it's been disproportionately affecting uh, certain populations, including cisgender men who have sex with men, which we're going to just call MSM from here point, and transgender women uh, seem to be uh, particularly at risk for developing uh, STIs. And, you know, again, back in the day when and, you know, all it really took was a shot of penicillin and you were fine. You know, you may have argued that SDIs weren't that big of a deal. When for, you know, unfortunately, that's just not the case anymore. We know that there's a rising uh, burden of serious illness with STIs, including blindness related to, to uh, syphilitic ocular complications and congenital syphilis, uh, syphilis. And one of the big public health crises worldwide we're dealing with is uh, the uh, rise of antimicrobial resistant uh, Neisseria gonorrhoeae. Um, and of course, that's you know, obviously a big deal um, because again, in the old days, a quick shot of penicillin and you were basically cured. And that's, that's, that's absolutely not an option anymore. And trying to find oral treatments that are going to work against antimicrobial resistant Neisseria gonorrhea is, is going to be a big deal. And it's, it's considered an emerging public health threat. So bottom line is, you know, uh, you know, what, you know, what, whatever you, wherever you practice, you're probably going to be impacted by patients who have sexually transmitted infections one way or another. And that's to say nothing of the economic burden that's associated with them and, and which is, has been studied in other places and, and is significant. So for all those reasons, trying to find a way to basically mitigate the harm that comes from high-risk sexual activities is something that we should all be on board with and be you know interested in how we're going to do that. And that's where the, this brand new study called the DOXYPEP study came out. And as you might guess from the uh, title, it's looking at, at DOXYCYCLINE as post-exposure prophylaxis. So not pre-exposure prophylaxis, not some 
something you would take every day, like someone who's going to a high risk endemic area of malaria, where you're taking doxy every single day, this would actually be post exposure prophylaxis. So again, a very unique way to approach this. Now, why do they pick doxy? Well, um, the joke I kind of make when I teach infectious disease uh, reviews to my students is that, you know, doxy has made a bit of a comeback, I think, in the last 30 years or so, because we take a step back and start to realize, you know, it's not that bad of a drug. It actually has fairly good coverage of a wide range of different types of organisms, including atypical organisms. And of course, uh, you know, if, if you're not really sure you're dealing with a zoonotic infection, you're not really sure what it is, you can always just throw doxy at it. and It's usually going to work. So for all those reasons, you know, doxy is, is, is starting to make a, or has made a, a bit of a comeback in the world of infectious diseases because it has broad spectrum. It's relatively inexpensive, relatively well tolerated. And it, unless, as long as you avoid, you know, uh, chelating interactions, it doesn't have any real weird uh, drug interaction. So, I mean, it's, it, it kind of checks all the boxes for safety and ease of use sort of thing. So the authors in this study postulated that post-exposure prophylaxis of doxycycline would be effective at reducing uh, the rate of sexually transmitted infection, particularly against uh, chlamydia and syphilis, which we know the doxy is effective against. Doxy is kind of the second line drug after penicillin for syphilis, I think, as we all know. It's not used for gonorrhea treatment, but in vitro studies have suggested that in most places it should work. Now, that's not a worldwide thing, but in most places it should work. And so uh, an earlier study called the Ippergay study um, did show about a 47% reduction among STIs, uh, particularly, again, uh, chlamydia in NSM patients who took post-exposure prophylaxis, um, and also found a significant reduction in syphilis, about 70% relative risk reduction, but they did not find a statistically significant decrease in gonorrhea. So that, I think, is kind of what prompted this DOXY-PEP study, which was designed to assess the active effectiveness, safety, acceptability, and effect on antimicrobial resistance, which is going to be key here. And something we are going to talk about in the study is if we're uh, giving PEP to patients and they're able to take it pretty much at will, what is that going to do to the resistance rate of doxycycline to gonorrhea? And so we'll kind of talk about that here as we go down the line. The study was a randomized open label study. It would be pretty difficult to do a blinded study here because you'd have to account for changes in sexual practice and true blinded study. And that just obviously wouldn't be practical to do. So it was uh, carried out in two HIV clinics and two sexual health clinics in San Francisco and Seattle. Patients were eligible if they were at least 18 years of age, were assigned male sex at birth, and had received a diagnosis of HIV and either were taking or planning to take HIV PrEP. So again, all the patients in the study had HIV, uh, they were all assigned male sex at birth, and they were either already on pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV or were going to start it soon. They had a history of condomless anal or oral sex with a man in, their, in the previous 12 months and also had to have a history of sexually transmitted infection, either gonorrhea, chlamydia, or early syphilis in the previous 12 months. So I, I don't think anyone would argue a very high-risk population that we're dealing with. They were not eligible if they had an allergy to a tetracycline, kind of makes sense. If they were taking medications with a known interaction to doxycycline, or were taking doxy for another reason, like acne or something along those lines. So again, I think these guys did a good job of targeting probably with some of the highest-risk patients for sexually transmitted infection and you know really Try to see if this is going to work with them. At enrollment, participants in the doxycycline groups then received three bottles of 30 delayed release tablets containing 200 milligrams of doxycycline. Participants who subsequently received doxycycline tablets then on a quarterly basis. So they got three bottles and then every quarter they got more doxycycline if they needed it. And, and this was determined by number of bottles. 
patient request on the basis of frequency of sex because how this worked was patients were counseled to take a single 200 milligram tablet of doxycycline ideally within 24 hours, but no later than 72 hours after any condomless type of sex, basically. And uh, they were to take no more than one dose in every 24 hours. So, uh, you know, again, not, uh, it, it, this isn't PrEP, this is PEP. And no matter how many sexual acts they had, they were only supposed to take one tablet of doxycycline after the, the, the first if you're index sexual contact, if you will, uh, that was a, a condomless sexual act. Um, sexual activities and symptoms during the previous three months were ascertained through computer assistant surveys and then scheduled a quarterly visit. So if you were in the study, uh, if you felt like you were developing symptoms of an STI, you would you would report and if and even if you didn't every quarter they would check you out to see if, if you might have developed an STI uh, they also looked at relationship with different types of sexual acts the uh, the side effects associated with doxycycline uh, they had a kind of a general survey about you know how how well do you like this therapy are you having any problems with it things along those lines they did use uh, the, the division of AIDS adverse effect reporting scale um, and and they particularly looking for hematologic and hepatic problems I guess there was is is one side effect with the, with the, the heterocyclines that can be the occasion rage LFTs, but other than that, they're pretty well tolerated. They also perform quarterly uh, PCR amplification testing of samples uh, obtained from the pharynx, rectum, and urine to look for the presence of gonorrhea and chlamydia. They also did blood testing for, for syphilis uh, using serologic studies according to CDC guidelines, basically. Uh, before treatment, patients with a positive nucleic acid test for gonorrhea were asked to return for swaps for gonococcal culture with phenotypic resistance. So if you did have a positive swab for gonorrhea, they attempted to come back, try and get enough for a culture and take a look at susceptibilities, which I think is critically important in, in this study, basically. They then did you know, other types of, of standard surveillance to look for STIs as well. The primary effectiveness endpoint was the incidence of at least one bacterial STI, so either gonorrhea, chlamydia, or syphilis each quarter, because again, they looked at them each quarter, on the basis of testing during study visits or other clinical testing outside the site. They had an independent committee who basically was unaware of study group adjustments who basically adjudicated uh, the STI endpoint. So they're the ones who kind of made the final call, yes or no, this patient didn't have that. The primary resistance outcomes were tetracycline resistance and N-gonorrhea and staph aureus. I thought that was kind of interesting. Isolated at baseline compared with organisms isolated during the fall, uh, study follow-up. And then they had a number of secondary outcomes, including, you know, safety, uh, what was the effect on each individual STI and uh, acceptability, as I mentioned before. They did their statistical analysis and uh, did a, a sample calculation. They figured they needed about 390 patients in each cohort. So the PEP cohort and the non-PEP cohort that would provide the study with 80% power and a two-sided error of 0.05 to detect a 50% lower combined incidence of STI. So uh, you got to give these guys credit. They really shot for the stars. I mean, they felt like this was going to be super duper effective. And they were right. The data, they had a data and safety monitoring board that they actually had in the study. And at uh, one of the interim analyses that on May 13th, 2022, they actually recommended that the study be halted for efficacy because the efficacy was so overwhelming and that they actually would be unethical to, to not offer doxycycline PEP for the patients who, who hadn't received it in the first place. So again, we'll talk about those results here in just a second, but that gives you an idea of, of, of the benefit that they saw. Statistics were, were pretty standard. Obviously, you're going to have to do some 
something that accounts for confounders here. They used a Poisson model that was uh, a, a fitted for a, a repeated observations and then actually looked at, at different covariates, including what city they were in, uh, the, what study group they were in, et cetera, et cetera. I was kind of surprised they didn't look at more covariates in their model. To be honest with you, I thought you'd want to look at like sex assigned at birth, type of sexual practices, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I thought that may all, you know, race may play an all role and they really didn't look at it and that which kind of surprised me. So the study was conducted from August 19, 2020 to May 13, 2022, which I think is another very interesting question because of course that was smack dab in the middle of, of the uh, a pandemic. And, you know, what would be the effects of lockdown, especially in San Francisco and Seattle where lockdown was fairly rigorously uh, enforced. Um, interesting to see if, uh, if that would have any effect. Of course, you know, they did the study and there's no real way to know. But um, I think that's, that's something that, that is kind of interesting and something that's kind of worth talking about. They actually enrolled 637 patients uh, with 500 in, in the modified intention to treat uh, population. In the three months before enrollment, patients reported a median of nine sexual partners in her quartile range from four to 17 and a median of five sexual acts per month. Taking a look at some of the uh, other characteristics, uh, you know, as you might imagine, the, the majority of patients were Caucasian, but there, were, there was a, a fair split, I think, among uh, Asians, Pacific Islanders, um, and, and Black patients as well. The uh, gender identity of, as, again, had to be male, so that was kind of it on almost all patients, though the transgender woman or gender diverse was a small percentage of patients as well. Uh, average income was, was spread pretty evenly. Um, again, talking about two fairly expensive uh, um, uh, cities to live in, it was, it's worth noting that you know about 40% uh, of patients had a, a median income of less than $50,000 a year. So again, high-risk patients, you know, patients with, who probably don't have you know all the all the uh, resources they need to protect themselves and, and protect others against them. Uh, the majority of patients had had an episode of gonorrhea in the past 12 months, and since gonorrhea and chlamydia often go together, they they had concomitant infections as well. In fact, uh, about 30 uh, percent of patients actually had an STI at baseline, so that, that that's kind of interesting to note as well. Basically, looking at, at substance abuse, because of course that puts patients at a higher risk as well. About a quarter of patients or maybe a little more depending on them, had reported stimulants, methamphetamine, cocaine, or crack use. Anal nit nitrates, uh, which are known as poppers, were also used in about 50% of patients. And surprisingly, uh, the, the numbers were about similar for marijuana. I would have thought that would have been a little higher personally. So, so you know, that's kind of the cohort again, you know, very high-risk patients um, and, and patients who, you know, many of them had STIs in the last quarter um, or had STIs at baseline. What did doxycycline do to protect them? We're going to answer that question and get some insight from our guest star after this uh, message from the CE Impact. Hi, this is Jen Moulton, founder of CE Impact. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review. We're growing and the more followers and ratings we have, the more great content we can provide. We appreciate your support to help you connect your learning to practice. So we're back talking about the Doxy Pep study again, a, a study that flew over my radar. It really shouldn't have because it's a landmark study, in my opinion, that is going to fundamentally uh, have the, the potential to change how we treat STIs. So again, looking at, at patients at high risk who received doxycycline after um, um, high risk sexual act, and they found that in that cohort, at least one STI was diagnosed in 10.7 patients during their quarterly visits in the doxycycline group, and 31.9 percent of patients in the standard care group. So again, you know, a 10% incidence of, of a quarterly STI and those who did 
who received or used uh, doxypep and about 31% in those who didn't. That gives you a relative risk of 0.034, which as you might imagine is highly statistically significant. And uh, again, basically a, a, you know, an incredibly powerful way to, to prevent STIs. In the end, that, that uh, translates into a number needed to treat of, of about five. And there's just so many, so few things out there that have such a powerful number needed to treat. So every five patients in this high-risk cohort that you would give a PEP post-exposure prophylaxis to would avoid getting an STI, just in incredible numbers there. So um, then they took a look at the individual STIs. They found that gonorrhea is the most frequent. And in the PEP cohort, the quarterly incidence of gonorrhea was 9.1% in uh, the doxycycline group and 20.2% in the standard care group. So again, dramatic drop in gonorrhea. And again, this is one of the, the, the first studies that has found conclusively the doxy you know, can work to prevent uh, gonorrhea. And again, that, that was highly statistically significant with a relative risk of uh, 55% less, so 55% less chance of getting gonorrhea. And all the other numbers were, were fairly similar. The numbers in, in, in uh, syphilis were really low. And so they weren't really able to, to uh, garner a lot of data from that, that, you know, the numbers were lower, but it, it, the numbers are so small, they weren't able to look at statistical significance. Uh, they found that that 86% of patients, according to their surveys, re reported taking this consistently, either always or often within 72 hours of a high-risk sexual act. And 71% reported never missing do uh, doxycycline after a high-risk sexual act. It was incredibly safe. Uh, they found uh, one grade two laboratory abnormality. It was transaminitis. And then uh, three, uh, five grade three adverse effects, uh, diarrheal events, and two headaches or migraines that they uh, judged were either possibly or probably related to doxycycline. I mean, who knows? Again, you know, I, I would say out of 500 patients, if one has an increase in LFTs, given the overwhelming benefit, um, I, 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 I think that calculation is pretty easy to make in, in high-risk patients. They did look at resistance. And again, this is something that, that's worth discussing is that they, only, they had a very small number of patients uh, that they they were able to get cultures out of. They only had 44 patients who had cultures they were able to do. It was only 17% of patients. They were able to actually do cultures with tetracycline of uh, gonorrhea. And again, that's just, that's kind of the nature. At baseline, tetracycline resistance was found in four of 15 uh, gonorrhea isolates for 27% after it went to 30, 38%. So, you know, it, it was, it, so the numbers actually did go up in the doxycycline group compared to in the standard care group, it actually went down to 12%. So one wonders if, if this becomes standard, will this be a time limited intervention? Will we not be able to do this for years and years and years because of the risk of developing resistance to, to, to doxycycline? Now, keep in mind that doxycycline is not a drug we normally use to treat uh, gonorrhea in the first place. But, you know, again, that's if there's a, to my mind, if there's a, a, a cautionary tale in this in this study, it's that this may be a time limited intervention that that over the years we may, may lose the ability to use this much the same way that, that a lot of the medications in the early ages of heart just aren't working anymore. So that's something we're going to have to keep in mind. So they did permit daily administration of doxycycline. As, as I said, they found that 25% of patients took 10 or more doses on, on, on the basis of their sexual practices. 
And there's some concern, you know, there's some thought that, you know, gee, if, if you're taking it 10 days a week, you just have this kind of constant level of doxycycline floating through you that may be good or bad, depending on what's going on. The effectiveness against chlamydia was 88%. Um, um, so that, that's pretty impressive. But again, we've long known that that works against it. And again, unfortunately, we weren't able to see a lot of difference in, in syphilis. Um, so there, the author's limitations is they feel that measuring adherence was challenging. I'm not really surprised by that. Um, and really, they only had kind of computer-assisted surveys to kind of record both sexual activity and doxycycline use, which can both be limited by recall. They note, again, that, that they were only able to get susceptibility results in 17% of, of patients who had gonorrhea, just because it's difficult to get follow-up in those patients. Um, they uh, found that there was an increase in, in resistance, but they also note that, that that increase in resistance is consistent with overall uh, resistance rates in, in the United States. So, I mean, it wasn't like this gigantic spike, but it, it you know, it, it, it definitely go up, went up and that's something to think about. And of course, they point out that this is in San Francisco and Seattle and uh, because of different uh, um, resistance rates and acceptability adherence, things, things may not be the same in other parts of the country or the world. But all that being said, I think this is a pretty important study. It has the potential to dramatically lower STIs uh, with a cheap and, and relatively well-tolerated medication. So, you know, I think it's a pretty good study. But again, I'm not an ID expert. So I'm, again, uh, very happy to welcome back um, Amanda Bushman. So uh, Amanda, thanks again for coming on the show. What were your thoughts about the study, kind of the pros and cons? Yeah, so first I just want to mention that until you brought the study forward to my attention, um, I wasn't familiar with it. So thank you for that. And I just want to share that with the group. I think um, the pros and cons are, you know, an interesting topic because I see like people who need uh, PEP and who benefit from PEP um, and so this is just another potential PEP therapy that can, you know, definitely impact our patients and uh, others that they interact with. And so, you know, that is really important and definitely uh, brings a positive light uh, to, as you mentioned, sexually transmitted infections, which some of which are on the CDC threat list. And so again, you know, that is very important from the con standpoint, and I'm not really sure it's a con, it's more of a thinking about the limitations that you mentioned, thinking about the tetracycline isolate resistance and what that means, you know, initially, and then further out, if, as you mentioned, is this more of a short-term intervention or a long-term type intervention? And then also I think about the computer survey aspect of it, you know, how was that administered? What did that look like? Was it done in a manner that could reach all uh, potential patients if you're extrapolating this out? And so those are just some things that come to mind. You know, I, I, I'm, I think they targeted, you know, you know, kind of the highest, highest risk, you know, as always, it's always dangerous to kind of extrapolate this out to, to, you know, other populations. One wonders if, you know, again, not necessarily HIV positive patients, but for example, sex workers, you know, who are at high risk, you know, would, would you know, we'll need another study, obviously, to take a look at this. But I mean, what, what, what are your thoughts about, you know, I mean, if, if, especially with the, the threat list that you mentioned with C, CDC, you know, it, would it be an, uh, you know, a, a harm reduction strategy, you know, in sex workers to, to say, look, you know, if, if this is, this is what, you know, this is how you're going to, 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 you know, make your living basically, and you're going to be at risk for that, then, you know, basically going to your primary care provider or, you know, something along those lines that, that may help get this in your hands so you can maybe protect yourself. Again, I realize that that's not the, the cohort they were studying, but I mean, what's your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I think it's interesting because as as you know, Jeff, the the original pre-exposure prophylaxis studies, the PEP studies, uh, were done in similar populations, and then there was further studies. Uh, that looked to expand uh, the populations that were included. And so I think, again, just thinking about where this study took place and who this study involved, you know, I think it's another potential tool in the toolbox. But again, and I think it says great volumes that they stopped the study, you know, early. But I think what we need to consider is do we need, you know, another type of study or another study in other types of a pop, you know, the population. And so I would hate to jump full force into, you know, into it for everyone um, without potentially uh, knowing more information or more data. Right. And I agree with that, Carolyn. And I think you bring up an interesting point with the population that you mentioned and having them go to their primary care office. Is is that a population of folks that has primary care physicians? Um, And so, again, I think about where could the accessibility of this be? to be implemented, to maybe hit some of those other folks. And, you know, again, a man, are both pharmacists. um, And so, I mean, you know, of course, the thinking cap kind of, you know, kind of goes off in my brain about, you know, is this an area where, you know, uh, pharmacies that are positioned to do this again, you know, when you're filling 500 prescriptions and the phone's ringing off the hook and, you know, you're, you barely have time to, to have lunch. Okay. Maybe not, but if we can position uh, uh, community pharmacies to, to kind of, you know, work hand in hand with primary care physicians offices or even urgent care offices. So you're right, you know, you're right, man, a lot of these patients are probably relatively young. They very only ha- may not have a, a primary care physician. And so, you know, but they go to their urgent care when they've got, you know, when they have an STI and, or they go in an emergency when they have an STI and then, you know, further treatment, you know, or further testing suggests, okay, well, you know, maybe you'd be a candidate again, as I said, you know, as you pointed out, we'd have to have a study in non HIV positive patients, just who have high risk sexual practice to see if you'd see the same numbers and stuff. The, the, you know, here in in our town, I know Amanda's group, she works with a a group of some excellent ID physicians who I've had the pleasure of knowing for many, many years. And, you know, they certainly deal with HIV. HIV, but uh, the majority of, uh, of our HIV patients are actually uh, looked after at, at one of our free clinics. So one wonders, you know, again, you know, you know, what's the intersection between community pharmacy and some of these free clinics? So, you know, what are your thoughts on that, Amanda? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head for sure as far as, you know, our community pharmacies uh, tackle a wide variety of, you know, uh, services and care opportunities. And so, Um, I would not want to add an additional service uh, to their plate without appropriate staffing and resources. So I think really partnering with some kind of other type of clinic, you know, without uh, more resources in the community pharmacy setting definitely would uh, be impactful. Could you somehow maybe do a telehealth partnership? You know, is it with maybe urgent care? Is it with the ER? Is it with an infectious disease clinic? Uh, maybe a free clinic? Is that partnership with a nurse practitioner? You know, just right. all different kinds of things come to mind. Right. And here in our in our uh, state, you know, again, you know, we we need ID providers like you wouldn't believe, and and so um, our group here at Unity Point, I think, has been very good about about you know ramping up telehealth, which of course was was big during the pandemic, but but, but even afterwards has 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 really I think ramped up the, the the use of telehealth, and I think that's a great idea. Is you know, could you you know work some sort of, of deal with 
with a primary care group or a sexual health uh, um, a clinic or something along those lines. And especially in rural areas, again, you know, you may say to yourself, well, I, you know, that's not a problem in rural areas. And that's just absolutely not true. I mean, you know, uh, uh, high sexual practices don't just occur in large metropolitan cities. They occur everywhere. If you have someone who's far away from, from a, you know, a, a ID physician or, or some other physician who's experienced in taking H taking care of HIV patients, which, you know, again, uh, I personally, <laughs> I have long ago seeded all my uh, HIV knowledge uh, pretty much down the line. And, and whenever I have a weird question that, 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 or it has to do with HIV or hepatitis C. Um, uh, Amanda's definitely the person I call um, because it's just, it's, you know, it's one of those things that unless you do it a lot, you really don't have a whole lot of business <laughs> working in it. And with my opinion, it, you know, this, it's, not, it's not a place for, for amateurs. You, you really want to understand the drugs, understand the, the uh, socioeconomic issues, which again is an, uh, another, big, another big thing, another big angle to this, this paper is that, you know, this is about the, a cheap and intervention as you could possibly have. And, and you know, uh, you know, yes, there's all sorts of really cool uh, yeah, new uh, prevention treatments and strategies for HIV. I know there's that once every six month shot and stuff like that. I mean, that's all great, but those are thousands and thousands of dollars. You know, in all honesty, a public health, I mean, if, if a forward thinking uh, state public health department could probably, uh, you know, purchase enough doxycycline to basically make a tremendous dent just by giving it away for free, you know, so it, it's, it, I think that the, the social angles on this are, 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 are uh, can be manifest, it'll be very interesting where it goes from this. So I guess last question for you, Amanda. So, I mean, you've read the study. I don't know if, if, if your, if your uh, docs have, have really taken a look at this, but I mean, you know, if, if you were to go to, you know, Dr. Best, Dr. Uh, Dr. Beach, some of some, you know, the, again, the ID docs in your group and say, here's a great study. <laughs> what, what, what do you think their response would be? And, and I mean, I think they'd like the study and I think they believe it, but then they say, well, okay, great, Amanda, what are you suggesting we do? And, and what, what, what do you think would be the answer to that question? Yeah, I think, you know, and I plan to share this study with them or actually get their insight uh, since you guys put it on my radar. So thank you for that. Um, I think probably what I would want to think about is uh, what are those uh, susceptibility rates that we talked about or those resistance rates first um, from that standpoint? And then how do you ensure uh, good uh, self-reporting uh, just so you can kind of track those things? And then when do you reevaluate um, some of those opportunities uh, from the resistance and the susceptibility you know, standpoint? Right. Do you do it yearly? Do you do it every 18 months? Just kind of those things. Is there a select patient population uh, within the cohort study that they would uh, kind of, I don't want to say call out to use this potentially in, you know, or would we want to wait for potential more information? Right. But, you know, yeah. I think with yeah. them having stopped the study early, I think that's definitely a huge positive. Right. But I think, you know, I just think that we would need to think about uh, different logistical things, you know, before opening the waters. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and, you know, I mean, I think that uh, uh, it'll be interesting. I'll, 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 off, offline, I'll, I'll be very interested to hear what, hear what your boss 
to have to say about this because I think I think that uh, yeah, there's you know I, I you know I think this is a, a big big study has a lot of implications. But as always, the devil's in the details. Okay, that's great. This is a terrific study. But like all of these types of studies, they had a tight control on these patients, right? They came in you know every quarter. They had this computer survey done. They you know they could only get their pills from from these guys. So I mean you know they had to show up that they wanted follow up and all those other stuff. Well, as we all know in the real world, that's just never going to happen. And unfortunately, I suspect a lot of these patients are going to get lost to follow up. And so, you know, how do you find out if one of them ends up with some LFT abnormalities or what if uh, your, your background resistance rate, which I suspect here in Iowa, the only way we would find out would be to call the state public health department. And I would assume they're doing some sort of, of, of surveillance on that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, yeah, you'd have to get your ducks in a row, I think, a lot before, before as you said, kind of opening the floodgates and saying, hey, everybody who's at high risk, come on, get some doxycycline from us. So yeah, I agree with that. Any last thoughts, Amanda? No, I think my only thoughts are, you know, thank you for bringing the study forward. And I think it opens a great discussion for uh, different colleagues, both in the ID realm and the non-ID realm to start thinking about and what the possibilities are, both from a opportunity standpoint, but also uh, what would we want to see along the way if we were to uh, think about this some more? Excellent. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. Like I said, I hope this wasn't too painful for you and we can call on you again uh, with your expertise. So thank you, Amanda, for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Have a great day. You too. So we will see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. That's it for this week's episode of Game Changers. CE Impact members, don't forget to claim your CE for today's episode. If you aren't a member, join us at ceimpact.com. We'll talk to you next week for Game Changers Clinical Conversations.